Welcome and thank you for joining today's conference, What Matters Now. All audio lines have been muted until the Q&A portion of the call. We will give instructions on how to ask a question at that time. With that, I'll turn the call over to Andrew Smidler. Andrew? Thank you, Victor. Good afternoon, and thank you all for joining us today as we discuss why a pandemic recession requires a different approach. I'm Andrew Schmeidler, and I'm joined today by my colleagues Stephen Burke and Ross Taylor. Uh, we're going to have a Q&A format today, and then we're going to open it up to your questions as well. Before we begin our call, we want to acknowledge first that many of our clients in the Northeast may still be without power from the storm. Please let us know if there's anything that we can do to assist you. We'd now like to turn to our Q&A session with a first question for Stephen. Stephen, we've talked about the unprecedented nature of the environment that we're in. This isn't a normal recession. Can you touch on some of the factors that are driving the policy response? Sure, Andrew, and thank you. We're in the midst of one of the most unusual economic periods in U.S. history as this pandemic has become a defining event in our lifetimes. The impact of the COVID-19 virus has been felt around the world by far too, as far too many lives and livelihoods have been lost, including some very close to us in the ARS community. The virus is testing the world in ways that have not been previously tested and its effects will be felt for some time. A typical economic recession results from central bank tightening of economic conditions to combat an overheating economy. That's certainly not the case this time. In contrast, this recession has resulted from the lockdown of economic activity, which caused a sudden and severe shock to the global system. The shutdown of global commerce led to a dramatic decline in trade and commodity prices. This led, immediately led to lowering, lower spending, forced savings, a dramatic increase in unemployment, as well as business bankruptcies and closures. In past recessions, including the 2001 recession, what we saw was uh, things like rising oil prices, uh, Federal Reserve uh, in a series of tightening moves, and a bubble of some sort that was about to burst. In contrast to this pandemic, we were having very muted growth, but positive growth around the globe, low, declining interest rates, and collapsing oil prices. So this is the opposite of what we've experienced a lot of other times. We think there's three big things that make this recession different from other recessions. And the first one is that governments and societies made a decision to address health emergency and to save lives through containment measures. The containment measures resulted in an immediate supply and demand shock to the global economy. And while there's much, been much debate about the policy of locking down an economy, it seems to be a necessary approach to help arrest the disease as demonstrated by the success in containment in other nations. Second thing that's unique about this is the speed and magnitude of the policy response, especially when you do that in contrast to the great financial crisis back in 08 through uh, 2012. This is particularly true when you look at the range of tools that was used by the Fed and other central banks, as well as the speed and, and uh, uh, effort that Congress put in to get uh, a program in place that's not a stimulus program, but really an income and revenue replacement program early on during the crisis. And there's more to come. And finally, it's occurring at a time of incredible technological and scientific breakthroughs. So on one hand, you have science and technology creating a whole new world. And on the other hand, it's fighting to preserve the world that we have. And you see that in so many different areas. From work, you went from 
Zoom, which is now a very common way to uh, communicate for businesses, went from 10 million users in December to 300 million users in May. Microsoft Teams grew from 32 million users in March of last year to 75 million. And in one day last quarter, generated more than 5 billion meeting minutes in a single day. Uh, that's incredible numbers. So we're seeing technology change the way we work, the way we're studying. Uh, right now there's more than 150,000 students and teachers around the world relying on tools like Microsoft Teams and other services to prioritize student engagement and learning outcomes, which is critical to managing through this so we don't have big scarring of our, of our people. And lastly, when you look at the scientific advances, and Russia announced that they might have a vaccine in very short order, um, we've had what we've done with the science community to develop vaccines, we're compressing a time frame what took years into, um, you know, three quarters or two quarters to uh, four quarters of time to get a vaccine out. These are unprecedented uh, moves, so it's a very different environment. So because it's so different, we're experiencing a period of heightened uncertainty, which is likely to persist at least until the virus is contained, <clears throat> and importantly, that people feel confident that it's safe to return to many of the activities that are currently being prohibited, restricted, or avoided. Given the sharp contrast between this recession and past ones, investors really need to think differently about the current landscape and how they're acting and approaching their investment portfolios. While we believe that innovation and science will win in the end, the road to recovery will be bumpy with unsettling news headlines adding to an already high level of uncertainty and unease. Due to these factors, most investors need to be very grounded in their investment approach and try not, try not to time things or be swayed by the short-term mar market swings in news. So with that, I'll turn it back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Ross. In previous calls, we've highlighted the rapid rate of technological change, and COVID-19 has clearly accelerated the adoption of many services. Several of our portfolio companies have been clear beneficiaries. Can you provide some color, uh, some color with a few examples? Certainly, Andrew. As mentioned by Stephen just now, and as we've talked about in previous ARS outlooks, the COVID crisis cut a broad swath of damage and destruction through economies worldwide. In doing so, it's created a great divide among companies and industries with a great number of them suffering and a handful of them actually winning. Beyond those direct COVID plays, such as vaccine manufacturers or testing companies, where in most cases it's too early to tell who the true winners will be and who's going to fall by the wayside and just become an afterthought in a year, and away from the direct impact of the disease. There have been a, wholesale, a bunch of wholesale changes that have occurred, and we believe that these changes are unlikely to be meaningfully undone when there is a cure or a vaccine. The beneficiaries stretch beyond what I've been calling the five horsemen, Facebook, App, uh, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, because the changes that we see being wrought in the economy and in people's behavior are far broader than even those five companies' wide reach. In our portfolios, we have a number of names that we see and the market has seen as benefiting from the changes that the current situation has accelerated. Among these names are CHEG, which furthers online learning by providing learning support resources for college and increasingly postgraduate students. 
Chegg started out as an alternative to the student bookstore for college textbooks, but it now focuses on providing everything from tutoring to practice testing to learning resources for students here and abroad. A student can subscribe to learning support for a single class or across a broad spectrum of college disciplines. Students are increasingly opting to take bundles of services where they get more than one class or more than one area covered. And this is great for Chegg because it's turning out that its customers are not only its best marketing tool, but they're also helping the company drive the way it builds its resource base for, because of the questions students ask and the areas they're seeking assistance. It gives Chegg immediate feedback on areas that students are migrating to and find important in their lives. A second name we have that's done well in here this year is Biohaven. Biohaven's got an, its first FDA-approved drug into the marketplace, Nurtec, which appears set to become the go-to drug for relief from and prevention of migraines. The company has already gained a greater than 50% share inside its market space in only a couple of months. The company has a number of other drugs that are following along Nurtec's path. And we think that the candidates look very promising. And as they come to market and demonstrate that they can actually bring and make money on a product, we think it's going to put them in a very strong position going forward. Our investment in biotech actually led us to another company we have an investment in now called Royalty Pharma. Royalty provides financing for drug and biotech development. Royalty tends to provide debt to companies for developing new drugs and takes back in addition to favorable interest rates, warrants and calls on the company's stock. This has made Royalty a sort of mutual fund of leading edge biotech and drug development opportunities, which is pretty exciting. A company we own which initially was seen to be a casualty of, of the COVID crisis but has turned out to be a resounding beneficiary is PayPal. When everything started to go south in February and March, Investors fled PayPal out of concern that the company was going to see a significant drop in demand. We thought the world was a little different then, and what we saw was the idea that a cashless society, which was in the U.S. pretty much out on the fringe, could easily become something that was much more of a mainstream view, and that's how it's played. Not just because people are excelling the replacement of brick-and-mortar shopping by going online, but also because people are shying away from the use of money even when they do shop face-to-face. -face. On this recent quarterly earnings call, the head of PayPal said that demand for their service has grown so much that every day now is like Black Friday. As with Chegg, PayPal's leadership has said it doesn't see the world return into a pre-COVID environment once COVID is vanquished or controlled. People are creatures of habit, and once you force them to change their habits for long enough, it becomes difficult for them to go back to the old way, and a new way becomes habit. And so that's a lot of what we've been trying to do. Andrew is trying to find those names that are going to become the new way of doing things and therefore benefit going forward. And I'll pass it back to you with that. Thank you, Ross. Stephen, what are the implications of the incredible fiscal and monetary response to the pandemic? Well, this is the most all-encompassing policy response by central banking governments around the world that's ever occurred. These policy initiatives are being implemented at a time when the developed world has been experiencing negative or near-zero interest rates for some time, 
and is facing continued deflationary pressures that have been present with us since uh, the great financial crisis in 08. The effectiveness of the policy response has been demonstrated by the sharp reversal in economic activity, and we've seen that in rebounds in housing and housing prices, employment, which was severely damaged in, in uh, the first couple months and has uh, started to rebound, vehicle production, inventory rebuilds, and importantly for investors, in the stock prices in so many markets. It's also evidenced by the decline in interest rates as well as uh, those for mortgage rates, which have hit a record low and are now under 3%. To date, the scale of this is, is really pretty spectacular. We've had potential monetary and fiscal policy initiatives have exceeded 29% uh, of global GDP or more than $25 trillion of commitments by governments. Think about it. We have about an $85 trillion economy, so you're talking about really significant uh, activity. In the U.S. and the Eurozone, we've put about 45% of our respective GDPs uh, to support the problem. Japan is at 60%, and the U.K. and China are just under 20%. What's been accomplished is unprecedented. There are many implications of the response. I'll just address a few. Um, what took months in the, in the great financial crisis uh, and years, we've done in a matter of weeks and months this time around which actually aids the recovery by softening the blow. And these aren't stimulus initiatives, as I mentioned earlier. When you're replacing lost incomes and lost revenues for businesses, you're trying to carry the economic system till you get to a cure so that the damage is not so great that you can't recover from. Um, central banks rec bankers recognize the severity of the problem on a global basis and have brought their full range of tools to bear and continue to work to avoid a more prolonged problem, mainly a deflationary uh, problem. It would rather experience periods of higher than desired inflation rather than act too soon to prevent it, which is a change for central bankers and one that's very important for investors. It says that deflation continues to be their bigger concern because they can manage inflation simply by raising rates high enough to slow down the economy. Deflation spirals are very difficult to deal with. The third thing, and this is important for investors, is there were two actions by the Fed that helped both bond investors and stock investors. The first was back in March 23rd when the Fed announced their launch of QE4, or the latest uh, series of printing uh, money. The second was, occurred in June when the uh, Fed decided to uh, support the buying of the corporate bonds, of corporate bonds either through individual securities, exchange-traded funds, or money or mutual funds. And what the first did of the QE, it allowed the proper functioning of the credit markets. If our credit markets aren't functioning, our economy isn't going. So they, they addressed that right away in March. And then what they did in June with the buying of uh, corporate bonds is they've actually helped equities because equities have the risk of the whole capital structure above them, including bonds and senior secured debt. And by reducing the risk of equity of bond ownership, they reduce the risk of equities for many uh, companies, and they tend to be the higher quality companies that they helped out in this case. We think this is an important element that's been underestimated and misunderstood by investors trying to figure out how can the economy be going through what it's going through, yet the markets be doing as well as they are. So what the central banks have done is they've boosted asset prices. They're going to maintain rates for a low period of time so that the economy can continue to, to heal. And it'll take some time, but we are kicking the can down the road on our fiscal responsibility 
debt and deficits are going to remain high and taxes will at some point need to be raised. Um, we think that addressing of debt and deficits is secondary to dealing with the immediate problem of getting people back to work. An unfortunate outcome of this is also a negative, which is inequality is going to be exacerbated by the pandemic policies because pandemic policies, printing of money and the like, favor those who own assets, not those that don't. And we have too many people that can't meet a $400 emergency bill, so they don't, they're not in the stock market or they don't own homes. So what's going to happen as a result, we're going to have higher deficits under conditions where low rates are going to be required to be kept uh, down, and we're going to have to work to uh, make investments in our infrastructure and other things that people who have listened to our calls for a while know. We believe that a big infrastructure package is required. And if it's done right, it'll have two very positive effects over the intermediate term. It'll help reduce inequality, which will, in our view, help reduce some of the political friction that we have in our nation, two very important elements that need to be addressed around for us to continue to uh, achieve what we can achieve as a nation. I'll turn it back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Stephen. Ross, in an environment with tremendous uncertainty and disruption, how do we get comfortable investing? Well, first, as you well know, Andrew, all markets are filled with some degree of uncertainty. So if operating in an uncertain environment is something that unsettles a portfolio manager, I'd guess they probably chose the wrong career. Therefore, what's troubling about the current circumstance isn't the fact that uncertainty exists, but it's the nature of the uncertainty. It's the fact that the uncertainty is rooted, as Stephen was mentioning, inside the very core of our economy. And because of this, that uncertainty doesn't fit easily into any pre-programmed trading pattern and response that a manager might have used historically as his go-to approach to an economic slowdown. But one of the benefits of being around for over 50 years, like ARS has been, and the fact that we make use of a big picture approach, is that while this situation is unique, it's not unique in being unique. And by this, what I mean is that while we didn't see the pandemic developing in advance, it was not beyond our ability to understand and respond to it once it came upon us. In the history of the IRS, we've seen everything from wars to terror attacks to depressions. We've seen apparently out of control inflation and double-digit short rates where a million dollars made you $500 overnight which is about the same that million dollars is now going to make you in 30 days at the current interest rate environment if you buy a short-term treasury. We have seen the collapse of investor confidence in everything from the dollar to our nation's leaders, which has happened more than once, to the equity market itself, again, which has happened probably too many times to count. In fact, this is the second time in just the last 12 years that we've faced something that could be considered an existential threat to our economy. And while we have largely forgotten it today, all you have to do is go back to the fall and winter of 2008-2009 to find a situation that threatened the very structure of our economy. But back then, the Fed and, to a lesser extent, Congress and the administration responded with a, collective, with a collection of conventional and extraordinary measures at the time that ensured that the system didn't collapse of its own weight. So today, we again have a market where investor confidence is at near record lows. 
while stock prices are at record highs, and where there's a relatively small group of stocks that are the winners in the current environment, and those small group has driven the market substantially higher off its lows, while other companies are seen to suffer in the current environment, and they've basically been what you might call share givers to those that are seen as winners. Now, none of this fits easily into a traditional response playbook for most portfolio managers, which means what we've done is we've created a market that's a bit of a closed loop where for one sector to move higher, it needs to pull money out of other sectors. This means that we're going to see periods where companies that we see as benefiting from the long run will actually be share givers to those that are seen to be benefiting in the short run per the traditional book. And that's a bit of what we've been going through in the last few weeks. I think what's going to happen is eventually people will feel that this is good because it's familiar. And over time, when something is familiar, you become comfortable and you grow a little bit complacent with it. But even if they were to come up through with a readily available and widely used vaccine and efficient and effective treatment regimes, we do not see this as a traditional recession because too many changes are taking place that are not going to easily be undone once things return to normal, whatever normal looks like in the future. And thus the tools used to fight a traditional recession are not necessarily going to be effective in the ending this one, and that the market strategies used in a traditional recession are also not necessarily going to be the ones that work going forward. So with regard to the current uncertainty, we believe that one must approach the problem with an open mind, attempt to understand the nature of the problem and the changes that are going to manifest from it, as well as the strengths and weaknesses of the responses being employed to get a better handle on who's going to come out of this whole affair stronger and who's going to come out of it potentially quite damaged. And through that effort, we are able to gain insight into where we believe we should put our clients' money and our own dollars. To do so, we must remember that people have four characteristics that impact their investment habits and behaviors in situations like the one we've been in since late February. First, many cannot handle the uncertainty, so they do nothing. They surrender their fate to the whims of the market. Second, some panic and leave the market, afraid of losing money during the period of uncertainty and confident that they'll be able to return to the market when things have normalized and make back whatever money they might have lost. Third, in leaving the market or sitting on their hands, these two types of investors create opportunities for outside profit over the intermediate to longer term. And lastly, it's important to remember that investors are herd animals, feeling most comfortable when they have company and when they're operating in a familiar manner. So even if that comfort is an illusion, they will feel good about it. But we're investors, we're not traders. We make decisions based not on how we think things are going to turn out over the next few minutes or hours or days, but over the next two to six quarters. If we were traders, we'd look at the current situation, at the current valuations, the current investment mindset, and likely have moved money into stocks that are more aligned with the traditional recession recovery playbook. But doing so, we think, would risk us falling prey to the illusion that the current situation is not any different than any of those in the past that we've faced. When, as Stephen mentioned in the answer to your first question, Andrew, 
this time it's actually quite different. So with that, I'll pass it back to you. Okay, thank you, Ross. Uh, Victor, we'd now like to um, ask you to give instructions to our listeners so that they can queue up for questions. And as you do so, I'll uh, ask a couple of more, one to Stephen and one to Ross. All right, as we move to Q&A, please press pound two on your telephone keypad to enter the question queue. You will hear a notification when your line is unmuted. At that time, please state your question. Once again, pressing pound two will indicate that you wish to ask a question. Okay, while we're queuing up for questions, Stephen, what are your thoughts on the recent weakness of the U.S. dollar and its prospects for remaining the world's leading reserve currency? Well, it's a, it's a great question, Andrew, because when the pandemic hit, the dollar became a has always been a safe haven, and we attracted a lot of uh, a lot of money people chasing the dollar because of its safe haven status. Why is that? Because the strength of an economy is reflected in the strength of its productive capacity and therefore in its currency. The U.S.'s innovative and entrepreneurial culture is, drive, is a driving force in continuing to improve our productive capacity. And as a result, the dollar remains the world's leading reserve currency. Um, and it's been particularly strong until the last couple of weeks. And what we see has changed is that um, it's not necessarily a sign of the weakness of the currency uh, or of the economy, but it's more a reflection of the fact that China and Europe have done a better job in containing the virus, and as a result, they're attracting flows away from the U.S. dollar after it's had a strong run. China's also not been quite as aggressive, as I mentioned earlier, in um, lowering rates or adding monetary stimulus, which also weakens the currency. So the dollar weakness right now is not uh, unexpected or unhealthy. It's actually part of the normal ebbs and flows of, of a global economy. But we think there are three key benefits from the recent weakness of the dollar. The first is it helps global growth by reducing the pressures on emerging market economies, particularly those that carry high dollar denom denominated debts, uh, by reducing their, their debt servicing costs. Second, it supports the foreign earnings of U.S. companies, and about 55% of the revenues of the S&P come from overseas, so that actually translates into uh, better earnings. And third, it encourages uh, commodity prices to rise, and that reduces the risk for many of the commodity-producing countries around the world that were vulnerable to the economic downturn. This includes countries like Russia, Brazil, Indonesia, and many of the oil producers. And just the move from $30 back up to 40 some odd dollars in uh, the price of oil is a big benefit to them. So near term, the dollar should remain under pressure as the U.S. is dealing with arresting the, the virus. And we have protests and civil unrest going on in a highly divisive election season. Longer term, we see the dollar remaining the world's reserve currency as there's no logical replacement on the horizon. To be a reserve currency, countries have to be comfortable putting their uh, foreign reserves into a currency. And just to put some perspective, there's about uh, just shy of $12 trillion of global uh, foreign currency reserves. About $6.8 trillion of that uh, is in dollars today, so about 66% of that. And the second uh, largest reserve currency, which is uh, the euro, has about 20% of, of uh, global FX reserves with the yen and sterling at about 10% each, or about around $1.1 So it's a very, um, very favored towards the U.S. 
Also, just so people have a sense, about 40% of world debt is issued in dollars, and 90% of the, the uh, Forex trading volumes are in dollars. So it's very important that people around the world have a stable, um, more predictable currency, which means you can't, um, you're not going to give that status to a country that has an autocratic leader or somebody like that. And the last thing I would mention about the weakness in the dollar is currency devaluation is a relative game. So if all the countries are printing money, it's just a matter of how you're doing relative to them in terms of weakening your currency. What it's done, though, is it's made alternatives to dollars more valuable. And this is particularly true for an asset like gold. With currencies, you can set, run the computer and set it to print more currency. With gold, you actually have to go and mine it through labor. So it's a very different store of value in that sense. So you have seen gold be attractive until actually the last day or two. Gold's hit new highs and broken through levels. So we expect that there's normal ebbs and flows going on, and we would expect a continuation of the dollar's status as the reserve currency. We're not concerned about the weakness. We think it's actually a healthy part of the uh, healing process that we're going through with the pandemic and one that um, we don't have any concerns about at this time. I'll turn it back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Stephen. Ross, how does the upcoming U.S. election factor into our portfolio positioning? On the surface, Andrew, this appears to be one of the most momentous elections that we've had in recent memory, and it could well turn out to be so. But when we look back, it seems that pretty much every election is seen as being a vital one, one that could change the course of the country, the economy, the market, or even the world. At this point in time, we feel it's too early to effectively judge what sort of impact the various potential outcomes of this election could have on the financial markets. Platforms have yet to be written, and running mates in some cases have not even been chosen. And while it appears that we know some of the fault lines that are going to exist with regard to social and societal issues, Beyond the need to create jobs, there's been surprisingly little said about what the various candidates have planned for the economy. So while we can assume a lot of things and we can make education, edu educated guesses about others, assuming isn't knowing and assuming often tells us more about our own biases than it does about the fundamental realities that are going to exist after the election. So it's also important to remember that this election is really two elections. First is that for president, and the second is for the control and composition of the Senate. So while Biden, if elected, will likely result in higher taxes, particularly corporate taxes, which will have a drag on S&P earnings, it's hard to tell what other spots he or Trump will deploy their limited supply of political capital to. Newly elected presidents tend to get very little political capital. Are they going to spend it on social or societal issues or creating new jobs or rebuilding our infrastructure to the condition it needs to be in for us to compete in an ever more competitive world? History has said that a newly elected president, no matter how great the landslide or loud the mandate, rarely gets the chance to make more than one or two major policy initiatives before he's used up whatever political capital he came into office with. We do have ideas about what areas should and likely will be the beneficiaries of the changes that we are likely to see over the next couple of years, no matter what happens in this election cycle. 
So to this end, we have initiated positions in recent months in names like Rockwell Automation to play the reshoring of American industry, Parker Hannifin, which will benefit from that trend, and also the rebuilding of America's electrical grid, Martin, Mar Martin Marietta Materials, which is in concretes and aggregates, and will benefit from the rebuilding of our hard infrastructure, and Newmont Mining, which will take benefit out of the continuing uncertainty about the global economy and what it's doing to currencies. But overall, it's too soon, we believe, to have definitive answers about what's going to happen after November. And even if we did, we also remember that what today seems like it would be a certainty could easily end up being nothing more than a chimera once the election is in our rearview mirror. Thank you, Arnold. Andrew, I'll pass it back to you. Oh, thank you, Ross. Uh, Victor, do we have questions from our listeners at this time? I do have a couple of questions. My caller, please state your question. Yes. Uh, my question is, as you talk about things like PayPal and how you were worried at one point, but now it looks like PayPal and the tendencies of how we will spend have changed, what do you feel about cryptocurrency companies like Check Chainlink? Um, Stephen and I were actually just uh, talking to another group about cryptocurrencies. Um, Stephen, do you want to have kind of a broader view? I have a more uh, narrower view on crypto, but do you want to talk more yeah. on the macro side of it? Yeah, and for you know, for it to be a real currency, it has to be. Uh, widely accepted and have a store of value and um, until in our view until central banks and governing financial institutions view cryptocurrency the same way they do as hard currencies um, which we think is a ways off where they're behind it um, it's very hard to have the confidence that's required in a currency to be of, of, of sustainable value so in our view, uh, you want to stick with it. There's ways to make money in it, and transactions are done in it. But for it to become a global currency, uh, we think we'll take the backing of uh, the global governing institutions, um, which is why Facebook's Libra and others have trouble getting off the ground. Um, so in our view, it's a, it's a ways off until you get um, broader support by, by a broader range of governments and governing institutions. I'll let you answer Thank you. the rest, Yeah, and I would just say that I think that in its current structure, crypto is really a trading asset much more than it is a medium of exchange. And therefore, it's in an environment where you have a lot of liquidity in the market and things move pretty aggressively one way or the other. Uh, I think that crypto falls neatly into that. People, It's almost to me like what happened to Kodak the other day, where people think they know it because it's been around. It's a familiar name. But when you really boil down and say, what do you use crypto for? Most people use crypto to trade. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. Victor, if we can take the next caller, please. Hi, caller, please state your question. Hey, Stephen, here's a, a more global question. Uh, obviously, you know, growth has been in favor for quite some time. People have been bemoaning the fact that value stocks have been ignored. What, what do you think is going to be the catalyst, you know, to change uh, the psychology because it, it has been so strong 
uh, and people are looking at, at growth metrics rather than value metrics. What do you what do you think is going to cause a, a, the shift back? Actually, it'll take a resumption of normal activities for value to to come back in our view because the the people that are winning right now, the growth companies, are solving very specific problems, and a lot of the value names are the ones that are the share donors. They're giving up market share to these guys. So until we can have the confidence to resume uh, unrestricted normal activities, um, you're going to have these short-term uh, value bounces. Um, but to get a sustainable change, we have to move back to whatever normal is going to be. And that means more unrestricted um, activities without the um, people being afraid to do what they've done previously. And short of that, it's very hard to see a sustained rotation of value. Um, and, and then there's the other question which goes to when you have um, companies that are in an in a environment where things aren't growing very much, and a company like an Apple with a rock-solid balance sheet can continue to grow at a 15 to 20% annualized rate, that's going to remain an attractive investment. So I think you have to think about how do we get back to where we have confidence doing what we did pre-COVID to see how value can really pick up again because of the damage that's been done. And, and I would just say, this is Ross, and I'd add just real quickly, I think one of the ironies of investing is value sounds like it's where you want to go when there's a high degree of economic uncertainty. But as Stephen was mentioning, it's actually what historically value outperforms during what you might call normalized economic activity, as Stephen was saying. And so for value to outperform on a sustained basis, we need to get back to what is a more normalized, sustained economic cycle, which is why growth has done so much better coming out of the Great Recession. Going into the Great Recession, the economy is growing 3 to 4% a year. Since the Great Recession, I think it's only managed an annual growth rate of 3% or more once. So we need to get that growth rate higher. And, and have it sustained, I think, for value to return to a, a long-term outperformance. And Andrew, if I can just add, there's one last element that we would caution investors on, and that we think there's going to be a lot of head fakes. Um, you know, Russia announcing that they have a vaccine uh, is very exciting, except that the vaccine wouldn't have passed um, most trials in the U.S. because of the number of patients that it was um, tested on initially. So what we think is going to happen is you're going to see a lot of people get all excited about vaccines and the development of them, but it takes two injections is what they're projecting for most of the vaccines right now uh, within a month period, getting the volume of, of uh, supplies available, uh, getting through where people have confidence that they're going to go through two injections um, because they're confident enough in the cure. Um, or the, or the immunity that's being offered by the vaccine, those are things that are really highly unknown. So we expect a lot of fits and starts as people get all excited and then realize that it might not be the uh, silver bullet everyone's looking for. So we really have to be, we're cautious, telling people to be very cautious, find the opportunities, but don't get sucked into the short-term headline news because it could just be that short-term. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you very much. Victor, are there any other questions at this time? At this time, I don't see any more questions. Okay. At ARS, our approach 
is to define the environment, to identify the beneficiaries, and to build portfolios to help meet long-term goals. While the environment is truly unprecedented, we continue to focus on the important and essential businesses to invest in. We greatly appreciate the confidence and the trust that you place in us, and please don't hesitate to contact us if we can be of further assistance or if we can answer any more questions. Most importantly, stay safe and stay well. This concludes our call today. Victor, if I can turn it back to you. That concludes our conference. Thank you for using the AT&T event conference to enhance. You may now disconnect.